Welcome to the Out of the Ordinary Podcast. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. Some of my favorite ordinary things are homegrown flowers, strawberry jam, and old books with someone else's notes in them. And some of mine are hot tea, always with milk and sugar, a good movie, my mom's hand-me-down books, and Sunday afternoon naps. This is the podcast where we believe that the best stories grow out of ordinary life. Get comfy. Here we go. So some of the fun things about being together in person are, in order of priority, tea, how you always have beautiful tea sets <laughs> that we drink tea out of together. I love a good tea set. I really <laughs> so do. So pretty. Your tea cozy made me so homesick because Aww. in South Africa, everybody has a good tea cozy. Why don't I have a tea cozy? That's so weird to me. I need to get one. And then always food, whatever great, amazing food we put together. But then I also love that when we're together, it does feel like an Ebenezer, you know, how in the Old Testament they would talk about looking back to see what God has done for you as you're now moving forward. Right. And every time we're together, there's this deliberate Ebenezer moment of asking, what has God done for us? You know, I think of that song, what have you done for me lately? (laughs) It's not the same quite. (laughs) But it is that idea of looking back and having somebody who's kind of a living library with you of so many of the same memories. You know, over 20 years. And I was just thinking about how you and John just recently celebrated your 22nd wedding anniversary. But we've been friends for like 20 years. We We share that much history together as couples. And it was always, it's always encouraging to me to have my cup of tea in hand. And then I usually have some dramatic flare up in which I say, (laughs) I predict doom and gloom for the future (laughs) and how nothing will ever work out. Woe is us. And then Christy calmly sips her tea and pulls her sweater closer around her. She always has a fuzzy warm sweater, you guys, that's long. (laughs) And she's usually wearing leggings this time of year. And then she wraps her sweater close and she pushes her glasses up on her nose, takes a sip of tea and then says, well... And then walks me backwards, <laughs> like a good English professor should, to mine the heart of the story and the plot line that we've lived together to remind me that God is there and is still working. Uh, maybe, Lisa Joe, I do that because you are, for me, a kind of... I don't know how this will make you feel, but a kind of living Ebenezer Stone oh, in my life. That's so great. <laughs> I've just realized that. <laughs> I think that's what it is because you have been a witness firsthand to so much of my life. And I'll be honest here, to most of my adult life. Right. Isn't because that crazy? we were so young when we met. For most of my married life, mm-hmm. all of my life as a mom, because you have been a witness right. to that. Right. Just being in your presence recalls so many memories, so many experiences, Mm -hmm. things that that we have shared. And and so it does cast my mind back. So I know we were because, you know, we're in this new year now and we're looking forward and you and I as friends and as um, partners in various creative hopes and dreams, we are looking ahead and we are making some plans, asking some questions, wondering what's next. Mm -hmm. And I think as is inevitable, feeling nervous, worried, right. unsure, anxious. Right. And we're we're walking through that together. And but maybe it's because I'm doing it with you. I'm sitting with you. It's easier for me to look back and remember certain things. And when I look back, I can remember being in places where I had maybe the small spark of a mm. dream. 
And it always seems impossible. Right. Well, it always is impossible, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) Whether it was a dream to become a mom or when I was living in Florida, it was the the dream that was beginning to grow of maybe I wouldn't be an English professor and maybe I would move into writing. Mm -hmm. You were a big part of that spark of a dream because you back then were telling me, (laughs) Christy, you should start a blog. And every time you would say that, my mental, the soundtrack in my head was saying, Never. It will never happen. Never. <laughs> I was like, it will. <laughs> but you kept lighting the match to that to that little dream. And so, yeah, back in Florida, I had just this small hope and dream of maybe I could write a book one mm-hmm. day. Maybe, um, maybe I won't always live in the Florida suburbs. Maybe I'll move north again and experience seasons. Maybe Jonathan and I can find an old house where we can mm-hmm. have enough bedrooms to invite lots of people to stay. Mm-hmm. So I remember that when I'm with you. Right. And then I look around. You're living it. And I'm living it. That's crazy. I know. And so why am I so overwhelmed and <laughs> I know and and fearful and anxious? Right. Because I am living the dream come true. Right. And it's good for me to hear that. It's always very good for me because the truth is I, Pete and I have lived some dreams that haven't come through. Mm -hmm. And I think when you and I mesh our stories together, it's the reminder that God though is faithful in the midst of both of those. Mm. And so when I, it's, it's part, I think, of my fears sometimes because Pete and I have lived some very wild disappointments together where it's felt like, where is God? What happened to that promise he made me? Like, I don't understand what's mm-hmm. going on. And so, when you and I were thinking and talking through, I was reminded of the season when Pete and I tried to move home to South Africa. That was really this hope, this dream I had. And we touched on it in an earlier episode, how Micah, in many ways, it was a redemption of a lost dream there. But we haven't really unpacked what actually happened. And I think for those of you that are listening as we head into this new year, there could be a lot of you that start this year with hopes and dreams and you give them to God and you trust Him. And then by the end of the year, some of you will not have realized those dreams. And it will be very easy for you to be frustrated with God and mad at Him and feel like it's unfair, all the feelings I've had. And so, I thought I would offer you this story to help you as you go through that arc. Because for some of you, God will realize the dreams you asked for, and for others, they will not be realized. But God remains the same in the midst of all of it. And Pete and I had this unique journey where sort of around the same time Christy and John were moving to Florida, Pete and I had moved overseas to Ukraine. We were there for several years. And by the time we came to the end of our tenure there, we had really kind of that feeling you have in your early 20s, like the world is my oyster. I could move anywhere. What should I do with my life? You know, we had no real plan. <laughs> we're kind of like, oh, let's go home to South Africa. We haven't done that. Like, we, oh my gosh, we didn't plan. We didn't look for jobs. We just sort of picked up and moved mm. because we could mm. and assumed God would figure it out for us. <laughs> and sometimes I think he does. And sometimes I think he's like, huh, where are you going? (laughs) I'm here on the path. We're journeying. Why did you take that sharp right turn? (laughs) And then he kind of waits for us to come back. (laughs) I don't think he's mad at us. I don't think he's punishing us. I think he's just kind of like, wait, wait. You're here. Slow down. (laughs) So, we took a sharp right and decided to move home to South Africa. And there are many good reasons for it. You know, I hadn't lived there in a decade. I was pregnant and we just thought, what a gift to come home and have our firstborn in South Africa and to 
start, you know, rebuilding bridges with our own family and to feel connected and to live their everyday stories with them that we'd missed out on for so long. So many good hopes and dreams packed into all these good intentions that were based on nothing. Okay. No planning. So for those of you that are making moves like that, please don't be afraid. Just be practical. (laughs) Find a job before you move to another country. (laughs) But we moved and there really wasn't a good job. I mean, Peter, for all of his qualifications and experiences, just coming in as an American, first of all, as a foreigner, it was difficult to find work. And I was pregnant and the economy wasn't really on our side. And It just turned into a very, very difficult season. And it's funny how a time there could be both things so sweet, the most beautiful reconnection with family, being pregnant, you know, in my, you know, living in my father's house, they had this beautiful little cottage in back and that's where we lived and having family on hand all the time to help and to love us and to walk with us for all those amazing milestone moments, you know, the 4D ultrasound, they're like all in the room for it and to be there when the baby was born and to help hold him. the sweetness of how it was to be in in our everyday lives shared together, juxtaposed with the constant tension of, we can't find work. What are we going to do about finances? Why doesn't God answer these prayers? We've interviewed for all of these jobs, like the constant sense of failure when you can't seem to make it work by sheer force of will and you're doing everything right. That's the feeling too. Like, here I am, God. Like, we showed up. We have all these wonderful work experiences to reference. We are hardworking. We are willing And just have it crumble underneath our fingers was just the most devastating experience. It was so difficult. And so I remember, you know, Jackson had been born. He's a great kid. so precious. And in our church at the time were a lot of young couples with babies. And I would look around at them and they just seemed like these perfect, happy families where the daddy had a great job and the mommy could stay home and like all these things we weren't, you know, Peter couldn't find the job he needed. I ended up getting a job and having to go to work and I wasn't home with Jackson the way I wanted to be and just nothing fit the mold (laughs) that we really felt like we had told God we would like (laughs) for him to map out for us. And it was just a very hard and disheartening season. And I started to feel like the faith I had taken for granted my whole life, I've been a believer as long as I can remember, I started to question that because it no longer felt like it operated the way I wanted it to. And I realized I had started to treat faith a lot like a vending machine. Mm. Like I put my prayer in here and then I select the item (laughs) I would like, and then it's supposed to come out the bottom. Like, come on, God. And then, okay, so I put my prayer in, but oh, I didn't put the right amount in. Okay. Let me also add in my good works. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like how, how nice I am. And you know, all these things I kept feeding into the machine and making the selection, I want a job, I want our own house, and then nothing came out the bottom. You're, or you're watching the candy candy bar yes. dangle, <laughs> banging on the machine. Right, which is true because we totally did go and look at houses because there's oh. no way like torturing yourself than to go and look at the houses you cannot buy or the car you cannot buy, you know, and living on the grace of your parents can be really humbling. And our parents were so generous and, you know, they helped us get a car and we were living at their house and they were helping us with childcare and, you know, dangle, dangle, dangle. The chocolate bar (laughs) is not falling. What more do you want from me, God? 
And um, and then I remember my son, my firstborn, developed the most severe diaper rash. He just had severe diaper rash issues, no matter what we did with him. And, and like it was so awful. The skin would peel like oh. from his legs to like halfway oh. up his back. And oh. the only way to help him would be like not to have a diaper on him, which is a very messy endeavor. And we were having a night like that where the kid was in so much discomfort. And I was just beside myself as you are as new moms and tired. And my amazing stepmom, Vanda, said, you're going to church tonight. Like, you're going. Mm. And, you know, our church at the time had morning church and evening church. And they met in an old, in a school gymnasium. It wasn't a traditional church building. And she said, I'm staying with Jackson. He cannot have a diaper on him. I'm going to let him just crawl around. I'll watch him. You go with your dad and Pete. You guys go to church. And really, no part of that was appealing aside from getting a break from my kid and his diaper rash (laughs) and the mess he left behind him. (laughs) Let us just be honest about that. So I remember going to church and entering this building that was just filled with so much life and joy, but it all felt like other people's lives and other people's joy. Mm -hmm. And I felt completely disconnected from it. I looked at all of these people and I thought, how nice for you that God, when you put money in the vending machine, (laughs) gives you what you want. It must be real great to feel that way. And I remember having services there where I remember... And so I just want to, for those of you listening, I just apologize on behalf of Christians who've done this to you, Mm -hmm. because when you're going through a hard season, there's something about the well-meaningness of Christians who aren't really walking that road with you, but then they get a glimpse of it and they offer some trite piece of advice. And so I had many Sundays after church, and this is why I'd felt resistant to going that evening, many Sundays where someone would catch me in the aisle, you know, afterwards, hi, how are you doing? And you do that casual chit-chat. And then... You might awkwardly in that moment introduce some part of how you're actually doing, you know, and then they're not expecting that. It's kind of shocking for them. And the way I described everything I was experiencing at at that time is I felt like I had this wound, like the soul wound of disappointment in God, financial struggle, tension in my marriage, the exhaustion of being a new mom. And it was it was like someone had shot me in the stomach and my guts were like falling out. It was oh, wow. so gross, right? But that's how it felt spiritually. But I was trying desperately to just kind of band-aid over it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll just keep praying. Mm-hmm. Just keep going to church. I go to mom's group. Here's mm-hmm. my little Hello Kitty band-aid. <laughs> right? As my intestines are like dangling out the side. <laughs> I know you're so happy I'm telling this story. <laughs> and I would be like at playgroup dates or little, you know, kinder care parties or whatever. And people would ask me how I was doing. And I'd always just tell them I was fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. But mostly I'm bleeding. I'm really hoping someone will look down and notice. Mm-hmm. But people can't notice unless you tell them. And so I had several moments after church where people would ask me, how are you doing? Expecting me to say, I'm fine. But every now and again, I would just point to my band-aid. <laughs> And I would say, I'm, I'm not good. And then they'd sort of pause and I'd say, we can't, can't find work. I don't know where we're going to live. We're really struggling with whatever, you know, I, I, whatever thing I felt vulnerable enough to share. And inevitably, someone would grab my hand and be like, oh, yes, I should pray for you. And then I'd want to think, oh, prayer. Oh, I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> yes, you should. Oh, and you have a direct 
telephone line to God. How nice <laughs> that you, because they would say it in that way. Oh, we should pray for you. We haven't had a chance to pray for you yet. We'll, we'll pray. That's the button I haven't pushed. Right. <laughs> like, oh God and you. Oh, that's right. I'm not one of the favorites. So I need you to pray. And I understand this can sound petty and bitter, which it was at the time, but it's that feeling of, I have such deep despair here. Your, your prayer feels like another Band-Aid you want to put here on top of what's happening. I actually need you to take me to the emergency room. And whatever Mm. the spiritual equivalent of that is what I need in my life, because it's that bad right now. I don't need a Band-Aid. I don't need a big smile. I don't need you to spend 30 seconds laying hands on me. Mm. I'm going to need you to kind of grunt and groan with me in the pain of what I'm experiencing. Mm. Now, that is an uncomfortable and awkward thing for both parties to experience. And a lot of it is on me because I never actually opened that door enough for someone to know how bad it was. Hmm. And so, at the same time that I wasn't sharing, I was also judging people (laughs) for not hearing (laughs) enough to enter into my true extent of my suffering. And that is the backdrop for this night when I went to church by myself, Pete and I without Jackson. I went in feeling very angry with the people in the building. I felt like I had this gaping wound that had now become infected Mm. and nobody cared and nobody could help me. And I'd stopped even trying to put money into the vending machine Mm. because clearly God wasn't real because he had not shown up to rescue me. Mm And I sat down, I'll never forget it, I, these folding metal chairs, you know, you know how that is if any of you meet in buildings that aren't traditional church buildings, people come in and they set up the chairs and you sit down and um, there was a stage because it was a school auditorium. So, there's a stage up in the front and the the band, the worship guys are setting up and they used to stress me out so much. They're, you know, the hyper cool worship leader with a skinny tie and tight jeans and hair that I don't even know. Why did they stress you out? (laughs) Because I felt like, isn't that a weird thing? They made me, they were like a foil to how Ah. desperate I felt. Like they were so cool and well put together Mm. and everybody knew them and they could talk directly to God and they Mm. led worship. And our church had this amazing worship team where they would lead impromptu worship songs where the worship leader would just be singing to the Lord and it would like make sense and you'd want to record it. It was so beautiful. And I thought, how nice for them. They probably talked to Gabriel directly, you know. And I kind of like to sat there and resented them. I thought, felt angry thoughts toward them, (laughs) judged them for their spiky hair. That was so cute. (laughs) I know, I was such an attractive person with my guts just like hanging down. It's terrible. I'm sitting there on this chair and it's before the service started. It's the evening. It's South African summer. It's beautiful outside. You can smell the jasmine in the air. Mm. Jasmine always reminds me of South African spring and summer. And I'm not talking to anybody. Everybody around me is shaking hands and glad arming and hugging. And I'm just sitting there, just angry, you know, just thinking God is not even real. And I'm I'm gonna ask you now, as I tell this next part of the story, to just to set down any of your expectations about how God operates, okay? And just enter in with me to a way that God met me. Even if it sounds strange, maybe it will help someone listening today. But this is what I saw in the eyes of my heart. I'm sitting on this chair and I'm angry and resentful. I feel intimidated by the worship band and by everybody around me who seems to have a direct line to God except me. And I'm angry that I'm even there. 
And I look up from my lap where I had just been staring so I didn't have to make eye contact with anybody or meet anybody. I look up from my lap at the stage and I'll never forget it. There's a weird cacophony of music stands that are kind of twisted. You know, they're not set up yet and guitars and a drum set that's getting put together and, you know, worship leaders bending and moving things. And as I look at it right there on the stage, in the middle of all of them is Jesus. It's the only way I can describe it. He is standing there in the middle of the hyper cool worship leaders, but he's not cool. He's so excited to see me. It's awkward. Okay. Like he has this huge grin on his face and he just starts yelling, you came, you came. Like imagine a long lost friend. And he, he takes music stands that are in his way and flings them left and right. And then just leaps. He comes running. He leaps off the stage, running through the crowd, pushing chairs out of the way to get to me and grabs me by my shoulders and pulls me in and looks in my eyes. And he just keeps saying, you came, you came. I'm so glad you came, you came. And then he does the bear hug tackle and he's just like jumping up and down like a lunatic. Just all he's saying over and over is, you came, I'm so glad you came. He doesn't ask me how I'm doing. He doesn't talk to me about my finances. He doesn't apologize for the job we didn't get. He doesn't ask where I've been. All he does is tell me over and over again, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad to see you. And that moment right there was a turning point for me in how I understand God. God is not a vending machine. He's a person and he loves us like a friend and he misses us. And he's always, always waiting for us to come back to him. And wherever you're listening right now, whether you're in your car or in the bathroom or in the kitchen, it's the same. You can show up and he will be just as excited to meet you. And he will grab you and say, you came, you came. And the interesting thing about the story is it does not have a tidy bow. We never found the jobs we needed to stay. We didn't buy a house. We weren't able to pay down our debt. Our marriage struggled further until Peter said, I think I have, we have to move back to the States because it's where I can find a job. And we left. We left this country that I loved so much. It was deeply painful. It's one of the most profound losses in my adult life to know we couldn't live in this place I wanted to live. Even though we asked so badly, we asked God over and over and over, the answer was actually no. Like, Sometimes the answer is no, and I've lived it. And when God moved us back to Michigan and planted us in a space where we were surrounded by Pete's family who loved us and helped put us back together again, and we had wonderful trips home to South Africa in the future and repaired any sense of loss there too— what I learned in that moment is God is not a vending machine. He's a father, right? And sometimes He doesn't change His answer which is what happened to us. Instead, he changes us. And that's what I had to learn in that situation. God's answer of no wasn't intended to hurt or punish us. It was because he had a different story written for us. And he changed me. 
I changed. He didn't change his answer. He changed me. He changed the core DNA of how I understand him. He changed my relationship with him. He changed my marriage. He changed my understanding of my kids and my motherhood. He changed so many parts of me that it's almost as if you could say it was a yes answer because it was yes to to things I didn't know to even ask. Mm. And so the no had to come so he could change who I was. And for those of you listening this year who are going to walk into a season of no or are maybe coming out of a season of no, my encouragement to you is that you have a God who loves you so much, it's actually embarrassing, okay? (laughs) It is awkward how much He loves you, and He will come (laughs) running for you. He will jump over who you think the cool people are to get to you. He loves you so much, and He will change you. He will. It's a guarantee. He will change you. And it's the changing that becomes the answer of yes that you don't expect. And it's not what you want, and it doesn't come the way you expected it. But slowly, he unpeeled my Band-Aids, <laughs> put me back together again, and healed me by being with me, and by loving me, and by giving me what I hadn't asked for, but what he knew I needed. So, I don't know, Christy, when you and I sit across from each other, you know, your story of yes looks very different than mine, mm-hmm. the seasons we've lived through. But I think in both of those stories, the echo of the same God who says, you came, you, you came. came, I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to add a single word to that story. <laughs> that, but here I am, I'm going to add a word. No. Please do. No, do it. No, I, I really have nothing to add to that beautiful story. I'm so taken by that. I, can, I think I can see that Jesus too. Mm-hmm. And it's just so beautiful. I can see that Jesus too, who says you came. And I recognize the voice because the voice of Scripture all throughout is our God saying, remember me, Mm -hmm. return to me, remember me, return to me, come home again, always, always come home again. We are that prodigal son who wanders Mm -hmm. so far. We have a home to go to. And the God who comes running. I mean, to me, that's the part that's so undignified, you know, and it's interesting that picture that I had that God gave me. I've gone back since and reread, obviously, many times the prodigal son's story and how part of what was very shocking about that story in its cultural context is that the father ran. Yeah. That would never have happened. A dignified Jewish man, especially who had been dishonored by his son, would A, not have gone to find that son and B, would never have run, would Mm -hmm. never have picked up his robes Mm -hmm. and shown any part of his lower legs Mm -hmm. in the running. Right. And so, the fact that I had a Jesus who leapt off the stage and came (laughs) running for me, I recognize the echo of truth. That is what He has always done. He has come running for us. And I think in a year where we're so quick to start making our own plans or to measure whether we're going to be disappointed or not, or will God give me this or not, and you're, if you're stuffing your prayers into that slot machine this year or into that vending machine, already pulling in frustration on the handle, may I just gently take your hand and tell you that God isn't a vending machine. He's a friend and a father, and He is sometimes not going to give you what you ask for. Instead, He's going to work on changing you. And that might be what your year looks like. And if so, may I just simply say, sister, I'm so excited for you. But at the same time, I would like to pour you a cup of tea Mm. and rub your back because Mm -hmm. it is hard to walk through that season. And finally, I would encourage you to find someone to tell the whole truth to, because 
I think that's part of what was was so difficult for us. We waited so long before we told anybody how difficult and how bad it was on the inside. So if there's someone you trust this year to let into your story, I would do that and then believe no matter where you show up, crying in the shower or in the McDonald's drive through or sitting in the parking lot after you've dropped the kids off or in your cubicle at work or in a pew at church... There is a God who is coming, running for you. And all you have to do is look up. You know that verse, I raise my eyes to the heavens and where does my help come from? And it comes running with delight and recognition and enthusiasm and second hundred thousand millions chances of of do-overs and overs and overs again (laughs) for a God who never gets tired of saying, I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you came.